to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. Today, we're doing something a little different. This is the fifth episode in a series that Matt and I have been doing where we're recording in public and sharing the progress of Crossbeam, which is the app that we've built, which manages payments between Maripost Commerce and Zero. And today's podcast was recorded live. We were at the Chartered Accountant Australia and New Zealand offices in Brisbane and recording live in front of an audience. It was an event put on by Heather Smith from the accounting industry. So the audio is going to sound a little different. There's also some audience questions at the end. And in this podcast episode, we're running through the life cycle of Crossbeam so far. We cover the idea phase and how we evaluated whether this was a good idea, whether we should build the product or not, and where the idea came from. We looked at building the MVP and then testing with beta users, and then finally moving to paying customers. And in each of the phases, we dig into what we learned, what the challenges were in that phase, and also the time period. So it'll give you a bit of a sense of how long each of these different phases took until we got the product to market. So as I said, the audio is going to be a little bit different because it is a live recording. So take that into account and hope you enjoy it. Thanks for that, Tracy. Thanks for the introduction. So Matt and I have been recording. I'm just going to give you a little bit more backstory before we dive in. But we've been recording a series of working in public. So we've been recording as we've been building Crossbeam, which is the app that Tracy talked about, and discussing the challenges along the way, what's been working for us, what we've been thinking about as we've actually been building the product. So this will be episode number five in the series. And today, because you Many of you probably haven't listened to the other episodes. We're going to do a recap of where the idea came from, what it was like building the initial version of the app up until today. So a couple of highlights. We got our first paying customer with this app in July, and we went live in the Zero App Store last month. So it's still relatively new. So I won't say that this is the full lifecycle story. This is the early stages of getting an app to market and getting paying customers. So usually when we start a podcast, Matt and I will have a little bit of a chat about what we've been up to. We won't cover that today. Uh, We're gonna focus on the story of the app. So let's dive in. Matt, let's talk a little bit about where the idea for Crossbeam came from. Tracy's given us a little bit of an introduction about how she had written a blog post on the internet talking about the problems that she saw with the Maripost and Zero connection. Can you talk about why you were looking for an idea and how you were thinking about looking for your next app idea? Yeah, sure. So um, I was I was sort of, I, I have this big list, uh, this text file on my laptop. It's like my big ideas list. And I think it's, you know, every time I've got like a product idea or a business idea, I just, just put it on this list. And one of the ones I've got on there is like, it's, it's something for Zero. So there's, you know, Zero has got, I think it's a million businesses are now on Zero, which by my definition is a pretty good market. So, and it, it looked a lot like the Shopify market to me. So 
if you're building an integration for Shopify, that's a fantastic market because everyone on Shopify is a business. So they're prepared to pay money to help you run their business and things like that. And so I thought Xero looked a bit like this and I went looking for uh, you know, a problem in the Xero space to, to try it out. Uh, and I did a couple of things that you know, we've talked about on previous podcasts where I you know, look in the Xero app store and, and look in forums and things like that. But it was, it was Tracy's blog post that I came across because that sort of really keyed my interest because it was such a clear sort of description of a, of a problem uh, number one, but also then how to solve it. She had a very clear workflow of how you're going to solve this problem. And that's why I got really excited and jumped on LinkedIn and you know, thought this, this is something we could build. Um, the, so just as a short summary, you know, Crossbeam is a product that integrates um, Maripost Cloud Commerce, which was formerly called Neato. It's a local Brisbane-based um, e-commerce platform, and it integrates it into Zero, So it pulls your payment data across into Zero. And this was sort of covered a a bit of the e-commerce experience that I had. And it gave me a a sort of window into zero in the marketplace there. And so I thought, perfect, this this sounds like the sort of thing I'm looking for. And so this was back in about October of last year that you were exploring the idea, getting in touch with Tracy. And how did you go about testing to see whether there was demand for this idea? So, um, you know, I... I talked to Tracy, um, and she, we, we had this big Zoom call, and she sent me a recording of it, and I, I had to keep pausing it to write down notes because it was just like this fire hose of information, so it was, which was great. So I had all these ideas about you know, what to do, and she connected me with the... There's a Facebook group for users of the platform, so I started looking in there. But the other thing I did was I, I put up a landing page, and posted in this in this Facebook group asking for people if they're interested in this sort of integration to go to the landing page and fill out a survey. So just a Google um, Google form survey. And it asked things like, you know, just a few simple questions about how do you do your current zero in- integration? Which feature set do you use? You know, um, do you do batch syncing or individual syncing, that sort of thing? And then crucially, would you be interested in a follow-up 15-minute um, call? And that the, the idea there was that if I could get a bunch of people, um, you know, filling out this survey and, and interested in having a call, then that would validate that there's actually demand there. And I wanted to know that before I went off and started mm-hmm. writing any code or building any software. And so what were the results of that? So you had some people complete the form? I would say the results were not good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, there was generally, I got, I think, I think it was about a dozen or maybe 20 people responded. And most of them said, no, I don't want to have a call, which, told, which suggests to me that this is not a particularly urgent problem for them. Um, and so I got, I, you know, I got on a call with, I mean, think three merchants um, and chatted about what they were doing. And they were broadly interested. Um, but some of the feedback I got was, no, I don't need this. Um, I'd only use this if it was a first party product provided by the Maripost platform. Um, and so I sort of, I was like, well, I've, I've had a look at this. I haven't really, you know, I haven't validated this. I don't think there's enough of a demand here for a, a new entrant into the market. And so I put it on the back burner. And then something changed in the market. So our competitor to, to Crossbeam, which is the app that we built, was called OneSAS. That was acquired by QuickBooks. And as part of that acquisition, they said that they were turning off the zero integration. And so that's when I believe you started to rethink things and see there might be an opportunity in the market. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the the uh, product managers at 
cloud commerce, then Nito got in touch. He actually emailed me and said, Had you, did you see this? Because I'd spoken to him about what I was trying to do, and he was, he was interested, but I'd said to him, you know, there doesn't seem to be the demand. But now there was uh, an, an existing product in the market that was leaving, and I knew how many users they had, and I knew all of those users were going to be looking for a replacement. And so that gave me, I was like, okay, this is, this is the timing that I'm looking for, and this is the opening in the market, because there's going to be you know, X number of customers that are going to be looking to move platforms. And if we get, if we get in front of them at the right time, you know, why wouldn't they come to us? And so it was at that point that you then got back in touch with Tracy, got the agreements better down around how we're going to work together on this, and that's when I, I started to join the conversation as well. And something I was interested in was what's what's the business opportunity here? And as one of the metrics that we discussed was the total addressable market. So how many people use Neto or Maripost that also use Zero that that aren't using another product and that will want to buy our product? Let's estimate that we think we can sell it for fifty dollars a month. Is there a business here? And that was an important factor for me in thinking about, do we put time and energy into building this product? And it wasn't a huge market, but there was enough for us to, to all decide together, yes, we want to put effort in, into building this product. Yeah, I think it, we, we knew from the outset that it was going to be a very niche market um, and that we would go in with, you know, our price point's $49 a month. So it's a subscription product, which is cheaper than the alternatives. But we also felt, you know, we could come in at that price with a simple product. And once we had customers, we could expand from there and also offer more advanced functionality at higher prices. So it was sort of like a, a, a land and expand strategy, I guess, to, to start out, get some, win some trust in the market and go from there. And the reason that we thought that there was potential for that land and expand strategy was looking at pricing for HOX. So if any of you have heard of HOX, we do what HOX does but for Maripost whereas A2X specialises in Amazon and Shopify. So our, our tool is quite similar to that. I'm not sure if any of you use A2X, but the prices are a lot more than $50 above. So let's get into the building phase. So we, yep. We've validated that there's, we think there's customers, there's enough of a business case to, to actually give this a try. So I think it was in February 2021 that you actually started building the product. Yeah. And how did you approach it? So it, it was, I, I sat down with, um, you know, basically the, the workflow Tracy provided. She provided um, screen recordings of what she did manually because she'd set up this workflow as a manual process for some of her clients. And that, you know, if you ever see you know, a, a complicated work, workflow involving Excel spreadsheets or copying and pastings or CSV files, then that's sort of like prime target for uh, a, a SaaS product that you can build to automate that. So Tracy had this, this specific workflow of, you know, using reports from Nito and getting stuff into Zero, and I just sat down and started replicating that into writing code to do what that did um, and periodically sharing, you know, updates with, with you and Tracy and showing you how it was going, getting some feedback as I went. But by and large, I was sort of just, I was just building it um, based on the, the workflow that I'd been given. And something that I noticed in the conversations with you was that you were trying to build fast. So yeah. we, we didn't have a year to build this product. There was a deadline. The one SAS deprecation was scheduled for July 2021. So we, we had a short window to actually build the product before our potential customers were going to be looking for an alternative. 
but I, my feeling is that you like to build fast anyway. Yes. And building fast doesn't mean taking shortcuts on the code. For the, the way that you described it was being really ruthless about what features we were building and what was the bare bones minimum of, of what we needed to build to create an MVP that we could, a minimum viable product that we could test yeah. with, with live users. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how you thought about which features to build and also we had some tough decisions along the way about what not to build? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so my my first test, you know, beta test, it was really Tracy. So, you know, I was building the workflow that she described and she was the first uh, user to get access to it and use it. But what I really wanted, I wanted to get, um, I wanted to get it done quickly. I wanted to hit this deadline that we had where one SaaS was going to be leaving the market because I wanted to be in front of customers when they were having to make their decision about what to switch to. But I also want to build it fast just because I wanted to know, you know, sooner rather than later if this was going to work. I didn't want to spend a year building something and then finding out in a year that, you know, for, there's some other problem that I hadn't foreseen. So my goal was to get in front of more than just one beta tester as soon as possible. So the initial thing was to give, um, give Tracy access. She would log in. We had a demo zero account with dummy data. So we weren't you know, touching anyone's live zero file or anything like that. And my question to Tracy was, okay, is this ready to go in front of beta testers? And Tracy said no, so, which, which was good because then I was like, okay, so what do we need to get, you know, get this ready so that actual clients can use it? And we went back and forth with feedback. And my, you know, we had to be really ruthless in what we did. We, with the feedback, it was, went into one of two categories. It was like, do we really need this before we can put this in front of beta testers? And that, that's things like, well, you know, the, the data needs to be accurate. We can't have an accounting tool without accurate data. Uh, but then there was other things like, well, we're not going to support um, New Zealand GST rates right now because we can focus on Australian beta testers. And so we sort of just de-scoped as much as possible to be able to get it uh, ready and in front of beta testers because I wanted to get feedback uh, as soon as possible from real data, from people with you know, real um, payments and numbers going through their zero account. So the build started in February this year and we had a product ready for the beta testers in May of 2021. And what were some of the learnings that we had from from having live clients using the product? So there, there was a couple of things. I mean, the, probably the big one that we came across was the debtor's ledger, which was something that I don't have an accounting background, so it was not something that I foresaw that we would need, but it was something that we picked up, um, you know, using beta testers and Tracy sort of identified that this was a feature that we didn't have. And at the time, it was a bit... Um, I was really worried about it because to me it was like it's a big bit of complexity that we're going to be adding and I wasn't 100% sure whether we needed to do it or how long it was going to take and we went back and forth a bit um, I think mm -hmm. on, on this feature. Yeah, I, I remember the discussions. It's a key part of the product with some of our users and so we would try to figure out well if we build this then we might not meet our, our launch deadline and that's really important because of what's happening with one SaaS leaving the market, but then if we don't build it, then a whole section of the market might not be able to use our product. And so then we're trying to estimate, well, how much of the market actually needs this debtors feature. And so Tracy posted in a user group for Maripost, trying to figure out how how the Maripost users might need this debtor feature, who, how many of them would, would need it. And eventually we made the tough decision not to build it because we wanted to, to launch yeah, and I, and I think that's sort of borne out to be the correct 
solution because we haven't had anyone. Um, it turns out that the, the, the customers that do need it probably aren't our you know, key target market, at least yeah. at this stage. So after we've done the testing and, and we've gone, so we feel like we're ready for market, how did you think about when we could turn on pricing? So, so how can we switch from saying to someone, can you test this product, you don't have to pay anything, to, all right, now it's time to start paying the $50 a month. What, what did we need to be ready for that? So I, mean, I remember this because it, it, was, it was one of these things where I was really keen to get in front of beta testers uh, and get them testing it and giving us feedback. Then I was really reluctant to start charging people for it. And I was saying, show me the money. Where yeah. we need to start charging. Which is one of the good things about you know having co-founders to work with is that they can have you know they can push you in areas that you're not comfortable with, right? So I was thinking, oh well, it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. And we need to get this fixed. And you know, is it if we start charging for it, we're sort of saying it's worth this. And you know, I can I can see, I have an approach where I can see all the problems and what's missing. Um, but the question was, is it actually solving the problem for people um and it was you know we, we had we had uh clients using it and it was working great and we we sort of got on a call and after some back and forth i was enlightened that uh it was actually ready to start charging customers so we had our first paying customer on the 7th of july so not that long ago and we've we've had more paying customers joined since then, would you, how would you define the term product market fit? Mm -hmm. And would you say that we've found it? So, yeah, when we talk about product market fit, we're, we're basically saying, does this, does this product solve the problem for the market that we're, we're trying to target? And I think in some, in some ways, it, I think it does, because one of the great things that we found so far is our churn is very low. So the, the, the rate of customers signing up and then cancelling is very, very low which I think is a good sign that we've, we're solving the problem and we're solving it reliably for customers. Um, the, I think the, one of the challenges we've got is that maybe the, the specific market that we have fit is too small. Mm -hmm. So we might need to find a bigger market and figure out you know, what adjacent markets are to, to these people that we're targeting and that we're working really well for. And what can we sort of add on and, and broaden our range and scope a bit? Yeah, so do we build the debtors feature or do we right. need to build some other things to increase the yeah, the market size? Now, we've made a couple of assumptions along the way when we were building the product, like the one SaaS customers would migrate across to us. And that assumption didn't prove to be correct. We might have got a couple of them, but in general, they didn't move to us. Do you want to talk about the learnings that we've had there? Yeah, so I think um, so. This has been this has been interesting for me because you know my, I've done e-commerce stuff before, but don't have a background in accounting. And what I didn't fully understand was how much I thought it sort of thought of accounting as a very exact black and white science. And I've still since learned that it's not quite like that. So when I talk to my accountant for my business, he says do it this way, and I just think that's how all accountants do it. And you don't challenge your accountant if you're a client because you don't know anything, you don't know any better, you just do what they tell you. But it turns out that there are different ways of doing things and different workflows. And the workflow that we've, we've built works really well, but it doesn't mean that that's how every accountant wants to do it. And I think that's where, where we've sort of hit, hit a challenge in that 
we're actually not just selling a product, we're selling a workflow. It's a product that enables a workflow, but it's a, it's a better workflow than what the current products offer, but people don't necessarily see that straight away. And so we need to figure out how to sort of evangelize that, that yeah. workflow as being the, the better way to go. And that was something I hadn't, I didn't see that straight up. I found that interesting too, because we've got Tracy, who's super experienced with e-commerce accounting, saying this is the best way to do it. As an accountant, I understand why she's saying this is the best way to integrate the information between these two products. It makes sense. But it's challenging selling a product where you need to ask someone to change their behavior. And, and we didn't count on that. And so we've needed to adapt our sales process for that. And we're putting out educational content. We're creating webinars because not only do we need to sell the product, first of all, we need to explain why this is the best workflow and then our product is the best tool for that workflow. And so that's been interesting for me and not something I've really thought about before. Yeah, I mean, we, and we have a, a, there was at least one customer I can think of who, who sort of, I had a call with him. He said, this looks good, but I needed to do it this other completely different way, which is how I've always done it. And, you know, I just had to say, well, that's not, that's not what we do. This isn't, this isn't what our product does. So I don't think it's, you know, it's not the right fit. I think a lot of accountants in the room might relate and bookkeepers. So this is how I've always done it. Going back seven or eight, nine years with zero, I think many of us would have had conversations along those lines. But here we are now with the, the million zero users. So are there any other, other observations or lessons that you've had building this app, especially seeing as you've already built a, a previous successful app? Is there anything that you've noticed either different or, or similar about building these two products? Um, I think, so the diff, one of the differences is in the way, so we've, uh, you know, we've partnered with Cloud Commerce, but we've also now listed in the Zero App Store. So it's been a different process listing with Zero, and that was quite interesting. Um, and I've done, it was a while ago that I did, I had to go through that process with Shopify, but I've done a couple of other e-commerce platforms since then. And they're all a little bit different and Zero was different again. And I think it does, it, it sort of gives you an idea of what their incentives are. So, and you need to figure out what they want. So there was, a, there was an e-commerce platform that I did an integration with a while ago and it was clear to me that they, someone had a KPI where they just had to get more stuff listed in their app store. And so they were quite happy to wave you through as long as you met certain criteria um, because they just wanted to get, say, we've got more stuff in our app store. Zero are not like that. Um, they've got very specific, um, specific requirements and it's, quite, it's a much slower, methodical process um, that is, I mean, they're very, very clear about it, but there is stuff in there that I sort of think, well, this, this is a bit specific. I don't think it really applies to us, but you have to sort of, you know, check every box uh, and you need to allow time for that. It took a lot longer than I was expecting. Yeah. I've put together a couple of my own thoughts about what I've learned from the experience. I've been chatting with some of the people in the room before we started recording about the fact I'm doing a writing challenge at the moment, chip 30 for 30, which means I have to publish something every day. So today's article was talking about the lessons that I've learned in building software, helping me to prepare for this. We've, we've talked about a couple of the lessons already, but I'll go, th I'll go through some of them that I think might be still relevant. So my first lesson was that I actually had a go at building an app about seven years ago in the health tech space. And we didn't understand 
that industry well. We didn't really understand the problem that we were solving. We didn't have a network and we didn't have any money and it flopped. And, and so this time around, it's, it's completely different. We had Tracy with a really solid understanding of the problem. We've got Matt, who's an experienced developer. We've got a network in this industry and we've got some experience and, and runs on the board. So for me, the, the key takeaway there was actually really understanding the problem that we were solving. And the second component of that is working with an experienced developer. And I don't mean a developer that, that has 10 or 15 years of experience. I mean someone that knows how to build things fast. And I think that was something that collaborating with Matt on this and seeing how in three months he had a product that we could test with beta users. And I think a lot of developers who haven't worked with startups would have a tendency to want to make everything perfect and gold plate everything before you can test it with users. And the reason I'm sharing that is that if any of you wanted to build something and you're hiring a developer, I think working with someone that's got a track record of having built something, startup and, and taking it to market quickly is super useful. You've already talked about ruthlessly prioritizing features mm -hmm. and it was hard, but, but we did it and made some tough decisions. There's something called the long, slow SaaS ramp of death, which is basically how long it takes to get to break even point or to grow revenue. And I found that challenging because accounting customers pay us, they're on retainers of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. When you're growing $50 a month, <laughs> it is slow, slow, slow. It's excruciating. And it's important not to get disheartened by that. That's just that's how the, the SaaS business model works. But we've also, you've also got a, a we've got the benefit of, um, so slow growth is not such a big problem if you've got low churn, right? So yes. we've got one of the benefits there that one, this is such an embedded workflow that even though it is slow, they're, they're going to be very, very sticky customers, I think. Yeah, it's hard to get, we're changing behavior often to get them to sign up, which also means that it's hard to leave once all of their workflows are embedded with our, our system. For sure. And that was my last point around changing customer behavior and, and thinking about whether your product requires someone to do that. Now, we've got a few questions that people have shared with us to answer, but I think we can open it up to the room now to see if anyone has any questions for me or for Matt or for Tracy about our experience. Yeah, so well, so we turned the relationship around. Yeah, right. yeah so that, that's actually, so our marketing is it's based on partnerships with Zero and with Mariposa. So that, that was my job, was that relationship. But also Matt was quite close with the product manager or a developer, yeah, from the, the Nijo side. And it was important for us to understand what do they want from this? What, why did they want us to build this product? And if we could understand that, then we could uh, think about that in, in our marketing or how, how we build the product. So, yeah, the, we had to turn the relationship around. Good question. So Jimmy's question was, how does the product work? And do people search for this question in Google? 
I might do the short answer of this question and then I'll let Matt do the, the long answer. So the short answer is if you know how A2X works, where it takes payments from different sources and then that, so PayPal, Stripe, Afterpay, and then batches up all of those payments and brings it across to zero. So you can match the transactions in the zero bank feed. That's what our product does. But instead of A2X is with Shopify and Amazon, our products with Maripost. So it does exactly the same thing. And then the second question was, do people search for that in Google? Not really. And so our marketing strategy isn't to rank for keywords related to that. The buying process is someone will sign up for Maripost. And at that time, they're thinking about integrations. And one of their questions is, does this integrate with zero? How do I set up that integration? So that's my job has been working with the customer success team at Maripost to educate them about our product because they're the people that sell our product because they're the ones helping the Maripost customer get set up, which is when they set up zero, the zero integration as well. Did you want to expand on how the product works, Matt? Or yeah, I can do. I mean, how, how much? Or how much? Yeah, maybe we'll go back to Jimmy. How much detail do, did you want? Do we have a whiteboard? I can. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, it's it's worth it's worth mentioning. Like, so this sort of comes off the back of your other question. Like, um, Maripost have been very supportive of it because I think they're at a point where they realise that they've got a lot more work to do building an e-commerce platform than building zero integrations, and they would be quite happy if someone could come in and, and build quite a good one for their merchants. And so our second, you know, we had this product leaving um, the market, and we saw an opportunity there, but we also saw this growth opportunity for the product because as Maripost cloud commerce grows, anyone coming on board is going to need an accounting integration. And that's, I think, going to be a much easier uh, sort of point to sort of get in front of their, get, get their attention and get in front of them because they're setting up from scratch and we don't have to pull them across from a different, uh, different workflow. And so there's, there's an opportunity there, I think, for us to sort of work with Maripost and their onboarding team and say, you know, this, this is how we can onboard you easily. And so a good relationship with Maripost there is pretty important and it doesn't require them sitting on Google going, you know, I might change my zero integration today because I've got nothing better to do. I've got a couple of questions here that I can refer yeah, to. Think of some more. <laughs> what's it like getting an app in the zero store? What's required? Uh, okay, so what's required? So you, the, the tricky bit is... Um, you need to actually have built it and have live zero accounts running through it. So you can't, you can't sort of list it and then go and look for some zero customers to work with. You actually have to have uh, a few already. I think they want five uh, so that you've demonstrated that it's working properly. And they say that they actually send a survey to some of those clients. I don't, I don't actually know if they did or not, but they say they do. They send a survey to find out that you're not doing anything terrible. Um, but and you're in a sort of a tricky position because until you've got approval from zero, you can actually only have about twenty or so zero accounts connected, and so you've got to sort of get a few working and then very quickly go off to zero and get approval so that you then not, don't hit your your limit of a hundred um, being connected. Um, there's the one of the nice things about uh, zero is that they don't uh, they don't require you to uh, do any profit sharing or anything like that. So a lot of app stores will take 
10, 20, 30% of your monthly revenue. Um, we've got uh, one of those arrangements with cloud commerce, but zero don't, so, which is nice. So we can list in there without, uh, without it having any sort of overhead on our revenue. Um, and then the, the other thing that they, they require you to do, which was one of the things that I thought was a little bit superfluous, was that they actually want you to be able to sign up for zero through your integration. So they wanted our zero integration to provide people a way to sign up for zero, which I felt was a little bit redundant because people wouldn't need us if they didn't already have a zero account. Um, but it, they were adamant that this was required. So we had to sort of go back and figure out a way to support what Zero wanted, which was a way to sign up new customers, which is you know their growth strategy, so that they would approve us, which was our growth strategy. So it was a, it was a matter of sort of understanding what they really wanted and then figuring out a way that that would fit into our product. Then how did Amy sign up to Zero going through your product, or are they all They've all come the other way, and they've actually all come through um, cloud commerce. So the question was, have we had as the question was, um, have we had anyone signing up uh, through our product for zero? We have to do that for the podcast recording. We're, <laughs> we're not used to it. So I think we've got time for one more question. So I've got one I can refer to here, but if anyone has another question, yeah, Eric. Meryl, I'm just uh, interested. You you developed this product because. One says it was going to stop using the integration to zero, but you didn't see a, a movement to your product. So what happened to those people with the existing one says product? That is a zero? that is a very good question. <laughs> yes, that is a great question. We're not quite sure. So I think we, we know the reason that they didn't move to us was because they had to change their workflow and they didn't want to do that. There's another option which is a native Maripost integration. So maybe they moved to that. Or maybe they're just clinging on and one SAS is still kind of working a bit for them in the background. Uh, at some point, it's going to turn off. So we're not quite sure. Did you want to add to anything to that, Matt? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I agree. I think, I think it's – I'm surprised that there do seem to be people still using that integration and they've been told that it's going to shut down. But my, I don't know, but it looks like it didn't shut down when they I said they were going to shut it down. <laughs> It's still running. So they. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So so Tracy just added there that um, she's she saw a post today that confirms that the one SaaS integration is still running. They're just not taking on new users. So, um, I mean, I think if I was sort of, it's going to be one of those things where at some point it is going to stop working. And then there's going to be people panicking and needing a, a solution really quickly. You would hope that if people are told that it's shutting down, they might move over in advance of it shutting down. But there's always more important things to do. Did QuickBooks think that people would move from zero to QuickBooks? <laughs> <laughs> I, Meryl? I think they're trying to make it difficult. So similar to what they did with Trade Gecko, where the zero integration shut down and then you're forcing people to make a choice. And so all of a sudden, it's kind of annoying that you're a zero user. But from what I'm seeing in the market, which is only I'm only seeing a small data set, everyone's staying with zero, but then they're just having to find other solutions for how to integrate these other apps. Or in the case of Trade Gecko, completely move off and find another inventory system. Yeah. Exactly. Heather, is there anything? Oh, oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, you brought on the point of selling to 
Well, we got Tracy on, on the call. <laughs> we just got Tracy to do it, basically. Yeah, so if someone was resisting the workflow, then we would try and get them to have a call with Tracy. And Tra Tracy knows this workflow that she's created inside out and knows all the, the problems with the old workflow because she's done it that way too and why this is better. So if someone was willing to jump on a call with Tracy, she's very persuasive, and that was quite helpful. Uh, some, some people are still stuck in their ways or, or maybe couldn't see enough benefit in going through the pain of changing the workflow. But, yeah, the short answer is call with Tracy. We, we also did um, – so we've got a help documentation site, and Tracy's recorded some videos about the benefit, like how our workflow works and the benefits of doing that. And there's also yeah. a questionnaire that people can fill out, and it will sort of guide them through whether or not it's a good fit mm -hmm. for their business. So I thought that was quite a good um, sort of, you know – on you know on, onboarding process for people to go and you know explore a bit about it because sometimes you don't want to get on a call with someone you know I don't uh, you know some sometimes you're going to get on a call you think I'm going to have the hard sell or something like that I just want to find out a bit and I thought that was a good a good way to do it have those videos and a questionnaire and put all the information out there and say this is why we think this is the best solution if you want to find out more um, give us a call and for any Notion users out there we built that on Notion had we had fun playing around with that. All right, well, we might wrap it up there. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the live podcast today.